In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the fifth Sunday of Lent, commonly called Lazarus Sunday. During this season of reflecting on our own sin, of self-examination, we have to know uh, what it is that our goal is, what we're examining ourselves for, and we're examining to remove from ourselves any sin so that we can enter into resurrection and everlasting life. And this is our opportunity to reflect upon that hope, to reflect upon resurrection. As we think about this promise of resurrection, there's no better place for us to look than Ezekiel chapter 37 and this uh, promise of resurrection, this picture that is given to the prophet Ezekiel. You'll see in uh, chapter 37 that the prophet is standing and the Lord gives him this vision of uh, the resurrection from the dead, of these bones that have been dry and long dead, uh, being risen to newness of life. You'll remember that Ezekiel is not only a prophet, but that he is a priest of Israel, that he's a priest uh, without now a temple, a priest without an altar to sacrifice. And um, he is feeling bereft, as all of Judea is, as they're in exile now in Babylon. He is a prophet and a priest without a home and without an altar. And the Lord comes to him and he gives him hope in this deepest and darkest hour. And he gives him this vision of new life coming to these dry bones. The remarkable thing about this story, though, is that you would think that resurrection and this coming to newness of life would be the end of that story, that this would be the finale and the peak. But the Lord says, I do this so that my people will know me. He says, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. We read that in Ezekiel 37, verse 6. He says, speak to the whole house of Israel. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And he says again, in verse 14, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So this promise of resurrection and everlasting life brings about knowledge that he is the Lord. And what do we mean by that? Do we mean that we just know that he's God, that we know that he is eternal? The devil knows that, the demons know that, and what good does it do them? This knowledge is a different kind of a knowledge. This isn't the knowledge like we think about knowing somebody's address or knowing somebody's phone number, or knowing directions to somebody's house. This is the kind of knowledge that shows a kind of a relationship and a kind of a loyalty. You might ask me, did I know my grandparents? And when you ask, did I know my grandparents, I might not say, well, yes, I know their names or I know what their occupations were. Or I, I know some history about their life. Real knowledge would be, do I know them as people? Do I know them and did I have a relationship with them? Did I have a back and forth with them? Was I loyal to them in their time of need? And did they serve me and mine? And indeed, that kind of knowledge might be the kind that we would turn around if we had a bad relationship and say, but I didn't want to know them. Right? I wished I didn't know. And that again kind of knowledge isn't I don't want to know their name or I don't want to know their address, but I don't want to be in loyalty or in relationship. So to have a real knowledge, the kind of knowledge that the Lord says that they will know that I am their Lord is to have this kind of loyalty, this kind of 
back and forth relationship, this kind of trust and dependence upon him. That this is what he's calling them into, that they could rise to everlasting life and that they could be with him so that they could be in this trust, loyalty relationship with him. That they would know him. And this is the kind of knowledge that Jesus is inviting Mary and Martha into when he raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember that this is his last great miracle. There are seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel is arranged in many ways according to these miracles until he enters Jerusalem. So his, his ministry is organized under these seven miracles. And last week we read the miracle about the man born blind. And now we're in this uh, ultimate miracle, this last miracle, the resurrection of the dead. And so the final miracle, which is Jesus' resurrection, where the Father raises him up out of the tomb. The interesting thing about Lazarus being raised from the dead is that we don't see anything from Lazarus. We don't see Lazarus giving a statement of faith. We don't see Lazarus repenting. We don't see Lazarus doing or saying anything. He's risen from the dead as a gift from God out of God's love for him. Jesus loves Lazarus, and so Lazarus is risen from the dead. This is a free gift given by God. And the interesting thing is that while Lazarus remains silent, it's his sisters who are doing this heavy work as interlocutors, as debaters, as conversation partners. And they're being asked to move from one place where they had been in their understanding of Jesus to a new and deeper understanding, to know Jesus in a fuller, more real way. They start out with this love for Jesus. They, they run out to meet him and we see the personalities of Mary and Martha again on display. You might remember them from Luke chapter 10 where Martha is busy in the kitchen and Mary is reclining. They seem to be these kinds of people again here in John's gospel, right? With Martha running out to meet Jesus and Mary staying in the house. And so whether you're that kind of action, go, go, go person, or you're the, the quiet contemplative, the Lord is going to meet and, 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 and talk with you and meet with you and bring you to a new understanding. And that's what he does with these two sisters. Martha goes out and she says, oh, Lord, if you had been here, I know that you could have healed him. So she's at one place of understanding. And Jesus says, you need to know me better. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. What is he saying there? First off, he's saying, I am. He's saying, I'm God. You're missing who I am. I am God. And then he doesn't say, I have resurrection or I have life or I'll give you resurrection and life, which is the way that we often talk about it, right? Like there's something that the Lord's going to give us. Here's your ticket to the resurrection and your ticket to the resurrection, right? We sometimes talk about it that way. He says, I am the resurrection. In other words, to know Jesus, to be in relationship with Him, to have understanding of Him, is to be in resurrection, that He is eternal life. He doesn't give these things, He is resurrection. And so when we're invited in baptism to enter into the life of Jesus, to enter into His life, we're entering into resurrection. We're entering into His life of eternity. We're abiding with Him in resurrection, abiding with Him in eternity. And so at this point, Martha says, I know that you are the Son of God, the Messiah who was sent into the world. She comes into a new knowledge of Jesus. And she runs to get Mary, and Mary too runs out, and she says the exact same thing that Martha did. These sisters are in agreement. 
and she too is coming into a new understanding as Jesus raises their brother from the grave. You'll note, whether we're in Ezekiel chapter 37 and about 580 BC, or we're at the time of Christ, these lessons are about in four Jews. Right? Ezekiel says he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and we read that these are Jews who are gathered with Mary and Martha. These are Jewish stories for Jewish people. How do we enter in as Gentiles? Jesus heals Gentiles and he invites them into belief. He meets the Samaritan woman and he, he offers to her the waters of everlasting life. That problem is still a real problem for the, the first generation of Christians. It's not solved in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem where they set standards for Gentiles to enter the church. It's still not resolved in the church in Rome when Paul writes this letter to the church there. It's clear from his letter that Jews and Gentiles are going in to worship, but they're eating at separate tables. They're having two separate Holy Communions. A Gentile Holy Communion and a Jewish one. And St. Paul is saying, we are one body in Christ. We're being invited into this life. And the question is, how? How can we be invited in? The Jews at that time would say, well, you can enter in by becoming Jews, by being circumcised and keeping the Sabbath and maintaining the purity laws, by coming under the law. And St. Paul says the law is condemnation. If you come under that law, then you have more to be condemned for. You have more things that you will be doing wrong. And he starts out Romans by saying Gentiles are under a law. They're under a natural law, right? We know by looking at the world and looking at creation what it is to, to worship the Lord. We know who he is. We read this last week or a couple of weeks ago, right? And he says that when, when the Jews are given their law, Sin abounds and so grace abounds. And then he answers that question that would rise from that. Well, then does that mean that we should sin all the more? Because then grace will abound all the more, right? And he kind of uh, figures that question. And he says, wait a minute. Right in Romans chapter 6, what then are we to sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. He says, by no means. He says, we're all slaves. We're all slaves. He says, we're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness. It's our choice. If we're slaves to sin, we get the consequences of sin. So we know that if we're promiscuous, we'll get venereal diseases. If we go around falling in love with everybody, our hearts are going to be broken and we're going to fall into despair. We know that if we steal, there's going to be consequences. If we lie, there's consequences. We see the consequences of sin very plainly. We don't need to go into them. They're obvious. He says the consequences of righteousness are the fruit that leads to sanctification. So he says, first off, if we are to be slaves to righteousness, then we're going to offer ourselves, we're going to present ourselves, he says. In Romans 6, verse 16, if we present ourselves as obedient slaves. What does that mean to present ourselves? He's bringing back this language of, of the priesthood, right? And of the temple and of the sacrifice. And he says we're going to present ourselves like we've presented these offerings, right? As a gift to God. This is what we're being called to do in Holy Communion. We're presenting ourselves today as an offering to God. We're presenting our souls 
and our bodies, all that we have, we're offering ourselves to God. And as we offer ourselves to Him, as we present ourselves to Him, then we're doing it from the heart for righteousness. He says that we have become obedient from the heart and slaves of righteousness. What does that mean? That means that we don't just enter righteousness kind of recalcitrantly like, all right, if I have to, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll do what you've asked me. That isn't the heart of obedience at all. The heart is to say, I hunger for the things of God. I thirst for the things of God. I want to do those things. It's to have our very desires change. Did you know that your heart can change? That we don't have to always like the things we like right now? Did you know the way that we think doesn't have to be the way we always think? That the way that we feel doesn't have to be the way we feel forever? That the Lord can change our hearts? His Holy Spirit would remake us and change the way that we think and feel. The way that we think and feel about one another. And we can represent ourselves as an offering to God. Not begrudgingly, or with our fingers tied behind our backs, but with hope and with love. And he says if we do that, we enter into sanctification, which means we are now holy people. Holy people with holy hearts for the service of God. We're now agents of His kingdom. We're ministers. We're a priesthood of all believers entering into the world to bring about His kingdom, His righteousness, and His holiness. We're not just dependent upon some clan, some tribe, some group to be priesthoods for God. He calls every single one of us, man, woman, and child, to be a priest in the kingdom of God, to offer ourselves and one another to Him. And he says that fruit then, that fruit of sanctification, brings us to the altar of God, ready for eternal life, for the free gift of God. For the free gift of God. I have three short examples for you of this. First off is the game of tennis. If I ask you if you know the game of tennis and you just tell me the rules, you don't know the game of tennis. Am I right? People that know the game of tennis can play the game of tennis. Right? It's not about memorizing the rules and just following the rules. It's about playing the game and learning how to play it. And when we learn how to play the game the right way, we become more free. The rules don't constrict us. They free us. Consider me on the tennis court. I can flub the ball with the best of them. Andre Agassi could flub the ball into the net like me, but he could also place the ball wherever he wanted on the tennis court, just inside the lines, just right, at just the right speed. Did he get that way just by following his own gut and intuition? No, he did that through discipline and hard work, right? By internalizing the laws of the game and by practicing and learning how to play the game through hard work and discipline. He becomes more free through the discipline under the law. Do you see that? He becomes a better player, more free through discipline, through change. Consider me at 16, learning how to drive, right? I came across a school zone and was like, oh, 15? That's so slow. I've got places to go, right? I thought about me. 
And then I rode with my grandmothers. They didn't need the speed limit. Why? Because they loved the children on the sidewalk. Their consciousness, their creativity, their imagination was about children on the sidewalk who might run out behind a car. And their love for those children and desire for their safety because their imaginations have been changed by God to love them more than where they were going enabled them to provide for those children's safety. They didn't need a sign or a flashing light because their imaginations and hearts had been transformed. My last story is in September of 1984 when I was confirmed at St. Timothy's Episcopal Church in downtown Henderson by Bishop Wes Frensdorf. And after the bishop had performed the, uh, the confirmations and he had gone into the parish hall and most of the people with him, uh, was left uh, one person in the rows, my grandmother, Nanny Giles, about two apples high with a little box in her hand. And she had in it my grandfather's ring that he had bought from the Navajo at a rest stop. It was a gift. I didn't make it. I didn't earn it. It was given to me freely by her. And it wouldn't even fit on my thumb. I was too small. And I put the box away and I forgot about it until my dad died. And when my dad died, I suddenly remembered this gift that had been given to me. And I put it on. We were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're given the gift of righteousness. We're given the gift of change. But we have to put it on. We have to wear it. We have to talk about it. When people see my ring, they ask me. And I get to talk about my grandfather. When people see holiness on us and they hear the words of God, we get to tell them about our Lord. We get to be priests in his kingdom. We get to proclaim eternal life. We get to speak the words of God that put flesh on dry bones and bring eternal life to his people. The gift has been freely given. Will you wear it? Will you enter this valley of dry bones in which we live? And will you speak the words of God? Will you tell people about his love? That he would change hearts and minds? Would you proclaim his word of everlasting life?